Putin has the gall to say he's denazifying Ukraine. It's a lie. It's just cynical. He knows that. And it's also obscene. Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. My name's Adam Smith. And Putin has the audacity, like all our autocrats before him, to believe that might will make right. My own country, a former president named Abraham Lincoln, voiced the opposing spirit to save our union in the midst of a civil war. He said, let us have faith that right makes might. Right makes might. President Biden, speaking in Warsaw on March the 26th, 2022, invoking Abraham Lincoln, as he so often does, and doing so to summon up the idea of a world riven between democracy and autocracy. It was a speech that could have been given in the Cold War. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, Biden said, was the latest battle in a long struggle. He talked about Hungary, 1956, Poland, 1956, and then again, 1981, Czechoslovakia, 1968, the dates when the Soviet tanks rolled in. And now, as Russian tanks once again roll into a European country, what is America's place in the world? What is its role militarily as a so-called world's policeman? And what is its role ideologically? Let us resolve to put the strength of democracies into action to thwart the designs of autocracy. Let us remember that the test of this moment is the test of all time. As President Biden suggests, has this war in Ukraine clarified the terms of the global struggle, restoring America once again to its Cold War role as the leader of the free world? Every goal that Putin had in launching this war of choice against Ukraine, and in his own mind, I think, against the West and our, our ideals, our values, he has failed at. He has simply driven the West closer together, more determined. And I think that has made all of us in the West stand back and realize that we we share something, which is some fundamental values. Ambassador Philip T. Rieker, the charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in London. Rieker's expertise as a U.S. diplomat is in European affairs, and his career has spanned the three post-Cold War decades. He was previously acting Assistant Secretary of State at the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs in the State Department. He served at the U.S. European Command in Stuttgart, one of the unified combat commands of the U.S. military, the one that essentially oversees America's capacity to wage war in Europe and Russia. And he was American Consul General in Milan and Ambassador to Macedonia. So I was keen to talk to him as someone whose professional life is devoted to advancing the interests and, I assumed, the ideals of the United States, and as someone who came into the State Department in 1992, just when the Cold War was won and history was supposed to have ended. How does he read the last 30 years of history? Were the hopes of 1989 an illusion? Does it now seem as if the Cold War was just one phase of an ongoing struggle. When we sat down together, I began by asking Philip Rieker about how the end of the Cold War affected him. 
He'd studied history at Yale, and then, before starting business school, he'd decided that he wanted to work on improving his German. So, just as events were beginning to unfold in Europe, he arrived in Berlin for six months, in the autumn of 1989. But, of course, the wall came down in that time, the 9th of November. So you were there in Berlin? I was there. Ich war dabei. You've got a piece uh, of it, have you? I have a few pieces yeah. uh, stashed away somewhere after 30 years in the Foreign Service. You're never quite sure where anything is. But that was a pivotal moment. And I realized that you know this was incredible. Uh, not just Germany, but all of Eastern and Central Europe was opening up. And I became very interested in how this transformation was going to take place. And, of course, at that time in 89, 90, no one was expecting that the Soviet Union itself was coming to an end, as it was known. Um, and I actually chose, uh, after I started business school, um, to take a summer program, a semester studying in Moscow. And uh, it was the the flourish of perestroika and glasnost, and they were welcoming Americans, certainly our hard currency, <laughs> at the Plakhanov Institute of, of Economics, uh, a program for business students uh, to learn something about the Soviet Union. Uh, it was a fascinating time um, where one got a feeling for what the Soviet Union had come through and, and just how frustrated many of its people were. And, and uh, frankly, that here my entire upbringing had been based in the context of the Cold War that we were fighting uh, or concerned about this enemy, the Soviet Union, where, you know, in the summer of 1990, most people didn't even have toilet paper. Little did I know that just months later, the Soviet Union would collapse. But that, to me, uh, made real the opportunities that we could uh, move ahead. The democracy was flourishing. The ideals of free market economies, imperfect as they are, could bring more stability security and, of course, prosperity to a much broader part of the mm -hmm. world. Uh, and it was then that I um, got sort of directed toward the, the Foreign Service, which was uh, kind of a fluke, really. I, I saw a sign for the exam, and I took it, and I passed it, and this suddenly seemed like it might be an opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't have to worry about I'm sure it's more than a fluke, hunt. I'm sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but I take that in the, in the spirit that you intended. It was something you, you did there in that answer was you coupled uh, democracy and free markets. And I, I wonder now, looking back over 30 years, do, what, what are the things that you wish that the United States, your bosses back at the time, had done differently in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union? You know, I think we needed to understand that uh, these transitions take a lot longer than we think. You know, the Soviet Union came down in a matter of days, really, unexpectedly, just as the earlier rumblings uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, the fall of the wall, the, the democratic picnic on the Austria-Hungary border, those things were unexpected, but suddenly they were real. And I think for a lot of people, it was like, well, this is done. Uh, we looked toward peace dividends, uh, military spending could come down, we could concentrate on other parts of the world, we could concentrate on our own challenges at home. The countries of Central and Eastern, European, uh, Eastern Europe had a tradition that went back prior to the Second World of elements of democracy, certainly of free market economies, uh, Czechoslovakia, 
which of course itself split apart into the Czech Republic and Slovakia, Hungary. These were early dominating countries in the Industrial Revolution, prosperous. Uh, they had suffered, of course, uh, after the First World War and then the Second World War transformed Europe to the era we knew during the Cold War, divided by the Iron Curtain. But they had more tradition. They had more to fall on. Germany reunified. Uh, but now we can look ahead 30 years and realize that even Germany has had a challenge in uh, overcoming that decisive era uh, where they were divided between systems of government lacking democracy uh, it does take take time and it takes generations uh, and that's something i think we have to grasp americans have always been ready to move active and of course with technology the way it is today mm -hmm. things move very quickly and it makes democracy itself challenging and the place of the united states in the responsibility that the united states had and felt for helping those difficult transitions back in the 90s and the responsibility that it that it still feels today i guess you you don't need me to tell you that many people in the world especially in these parts of the world that we're just talking about here in eastern europe and and especially in russia when they hear those words especially coming from the voice of a, of a, of an american an american politician or an american diplomat that what they hear is american power what they hear is a desire to make the world like America. And that sounds like an imperial project. I mean, how can you possibly, as a career diplomat, or when you're giving advice to your politically elected bosses in Washington, how can you navigate that basic problem? That when you say democracy, some other people hear raw American power. Well, it's also something that can be very used, uh, and we've seen that certainly in current times, uh, but really since the transition of the Soviet Union, the, the, the end of the Soviet Union and, and the countries that emerged from it, people like Vladimir Putin have, have used that. And I think we realize now that the, the change was never really as uh, intuitive as we may have taken for granted, uh, and that we have to have a sense of empathy, but certainly trying to understand the experience of someone who grew up in the Soviet Union, how they interpret the world, how it was presented to them, uh, and what we could offer, I think, with, you know, very uh, good intention, advisors, education, assistance, from humanitarian assistance to uh, to development assistance and the programs to better understand the United States, but to understand these ideals as well. And we did that. There was a, a lot of uh, resources put into this on the diplomatic front. We opened embassies, consulates, uh, all kinds of offices and, and smaller presence posts uh, throughout the region in countries that people had never heard of in Central Asia and uh, uh, those countries that emerged from the Soviet Union to help these countries lift out of poverty vast populations. But it doesn't always work out the way you, you think you it will. Always, you, you, you don't always, I imagine, feel like you're getting the credit for that kind of, that kind of work. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, the underlying reality is that, you know, 30 years after the end of the Cold War and for all that there's we 
can see what Russia is doing as we as we speak in Ukraine and for all that there's been a long term discussion about the the rise of China, which feels inexorable and real. Mm-hmm. The underlying reality is that the United States remains uh, by any um measure whether you're thinking about uh, the the global reach of its military or the size of its economy or the fact that it has the world's reserve currency the united states remains the leading global power and it feels to me anyway and this is perhaps a hostage to fortune <laughs> is probably likely to be so for the rest of of our lives i think we really are as some people have put it the, you know the american experiment is something that goes on and one thing to remember about the united states i think perhaps the the, the most key element of of what was created by the the founding fathers as we call them uh in 1776 was when our constitution was established we talked in that famous phrase in order to form a more perfect union and yet we have never said it is perfect it is a constant effort through the the pendulum swings of history to form a more perfect union because it's incomplete the the the, the great historian uh, richard hofstadter who's mm. always very quotable one of his very quotable lines is that uh, america is a place uh, born in perfection that nevertheless aspires to progress yes and i think that 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 captures that that uh, tension that you're that you're, that you're talking about there. But yeah. I, I mean, for most of the history of the United States, up until um, well into the uh, 20th century, um, the, the, the power, the global power of the American experiment of the founding fathers that you're referring to was, was an ideological, political, uh, it was an ideological power. It was a mm-hmm. political influence. It was a place that many people, especially in Europe, saw as a model for the future that's hence you know alexis de tocqueville going there in order to because the assumption was that what was happening in america was the pattern for the future of the world good Mm -hmm. or bad and for many people especially radicals and people who believed in in emancipation of of various forms and i don't just mean the ending of slavery i mean Mm -hmm. emancipation for white working men as it was often imagined in europe that the united states provided this incredible model it had universal white male suffrage uh, many decades before most european it had land it had had opportunity it had opportunity but what the the reality that that you're dealing with and your predecessors have been dealing with now for for um you know the best part of a century is that overlaid on top of this massive economic and military power and i i I just one of the things i suppose i observe is the ways in which those two things get tangled Mm -hmm. up so hence this business of you talking about the importance of democracy and free markets as being the way of bringing prosperity and security to post-Soviet states. But people in those places often hearing, and, you know, we could talk about Iraq as well, <laughs> but often hearing American American power. And we and should talk about that, Iraq because I, I served yeah. in Iraq as well at, a, at an interesting and very challenging Tell me, I, I looked up your, you, you spent, I, I believe, eight hours testifying uh, in the inquiry that led to the uh, uh, first impeachment of President Trump. It was, of course, heavily redacted, the, 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 <laughs> the transcript that's publicly available. One of the pieces that was redacted early on is when you say they asked you to 
summarize your career and you say what you did in Iraq and it's redacted. So what, what are you able to say on this podcast about what you well, did in Iraq? I'm perfectly proud to say I was, I was assigned uh, to Iraq. Uh, I was the, the counselor for public affairs at our embassy there from 2007 to 2008, which was at that time still the, the largest American embassy in the world uh, under very difficult circumstances. You'll recall after the uh, invasion of Iraq and the, the fall of Saddam Hussein and his truly, truly that, odious that was regime. around the time of the sort of the surge. The surge. And of course, things hadn't gone as expected. Uh, the sectarian violence, the backlash against America, well, the collapse gone, of Iraqi they society. They had gone as the United States expected. I mean, some other people uh, you're, had you're right. There were those who predicted this. Uh, some of my colleagues called it the perfect storm understanding as, as some did again those who had an understanding of say iraq which was a society where the bathist regime of saddam hussein had completely destroyed every element of civil society you know from the boy scouts uh, certainly religion to to the family unit which they carefully co-opted and and uh, left people uh, living afraid uh, paranoid uh, entirely reliant upon the state, essentially, it was, as I always described it, a gilded mirror in a frame that was then shattered. But the frame of Saddam kept it together. When we broke that frame, the pieces shattered and fell to the floor and, and are only being put back together. We were, in a, frankly, in American tradition, trying to recover through the surge uh, a better place. And of course, since that time, we've largely gotten out. And some would say Iraq has, has forged a, a future of its own. It has resources. They've found uh, power sharing agreements. Of course, they have lots of challenges, including interference from Iran and, and other things. But the, the point of, of that is to say um, that was a, a chapter uh, in American history that was part of what I talk about as the post 9-11 era. And, you know, September 11th, 2001, I was the deputy spokesman of the State Department. I was there in the State Department. I remember very well when the news came of the the planes hitting the World Trade Center and then the Pentagon, which was just across the river. I could see the smoke rising from my office window. And I spent the rest of that day in the, the operations center of the State Department with the deputy secretary of state, Richard Armitage. Secretary Powell was traveling in Peru and making his way back. And the palpable sense of the unknown, of the horror of what had taken place, what it all meant, uh, was very much on people's minds. And I think looking back, we can now see that that was a beginning of, of, a, of an era. I call it the 9-11 the era, uh, two decades, frankly, where the dominant emotions were anger and fear. And that's, of course, when we began to concentrate on the terrorist threat. But those emotions, anger, fear, had took over where the more traditional American ideals of, of hope, of opportunity, the can-do spirit, I think were, were lost for a time. And I think we're trying now to get back uh, to looking ahead. And it's interesting that 20 years later, Vladimir Putin, having undertaken this war of choice, um, we are now at a point where 
there is more unity in the West and the ideal of the West with America very much a part of that, playing a, a leadership role along with the United Kingdom, than there has been for at least a generation or more, perhaps more so than any time since the end of World War II. Uh, and so the defining challenges uh, that President Biden outlined just a year and a bit ago in his inaugural address, I think, are very prevalent now. He focused on democracy and its challenges and dealing or how democracy uh, adapts to modernity, to technological change. You know, he I've had this conversation with President Biden, actually, uh, on the margins of the COP conference up in uh, in Glasgow in November. And he was saying how you know, President Xi of China will say, look, uh, you know, your democracy is totally outdated. Technology moves too quickly. The world can't keep up uh, with that kind of change through your ponderous democratic process, through the you know, building of consensus. And that's why Xi is for autocracy. And, and uh, you see someone like Putin, who has remained not only autocratic, but now truly fascist. And I think that has made all of us in the West stand back and realize that we we share something, which is some fundamental values and this unity that we have. And it will be raucous and there will be lots of people saying, oh, look, there's a division here or different views being expressed. There's well, that's part of it. And that's what what gives that unity strength. What we have to see is that every goal that Putin had in launching this war of choice against Ukraine and in his own mind, I think against the West and our, our ideals, our values, he has failed at. He has simply driven the West closer together, more determined. The Ukrainians themselves have exhibited profiles and courage that uh, are truly remarkable. Uh, and I think we're finding ourselves certainly with tremendous number of challenges, the challenges of democracy, uh, the, the, as I call it, the tyranny of the rule of law, uh, but preserving and strengthening the world that we built in the post-World War II era through these institutions. That's, it's so, in, I mean, that's, that's such an interesting way of, way of framing it. I mean, it almost feels like the United States as a leader in the, as the leader of, of the West can act most effectively in building Western unity when it has a clear enemy. In the Cold War period, it had a clear enemy. Um, in the time when you came into the um, diplomatic service, it was lacking that enemy. Then 9-11 happened and there was a kind of imagined enemy, but it was, it was an enemy that was hard to pin down. And mm -hmm. it led into what, of course, many other people in the world also called a war of choice on the United States part, the invasion of Iraq, the connection to 9-11 of which, of course, was, to put it mildly, highly contested, right? Mm -hmm. So so that was that was an enemy that in some ways, though it may have felt like there was a, a huge creation of huge... I mean, there was this incredible feeling of sympathy with the United States around the world. Of course there was in September. We are all Americans very, now. We are all Americans now. But it dissipated. Uh, now, maybe um, <laughs> what you're describing because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a reconstruction of a clear uh, differential, a clear contrast mm -hmm. between the more open society um, that 
the United States feels it defines and the kind of autocracy and top-down control uh, that is represented both in China and in a different way in Russia. You know, Adam, I think it's, it's very true. I, I've been thinking a lot about um, Madeleine Albright in recent who, weeks who because, died, of course, she, she died recently. recently. I worked for Madeleine Albright. I was uh, She had brought me uh, from... Uh, from my assignment in the Balkans uh, during the, the Kosovo War, I was in uh, what's now North Macedonia. She brought me back uh, to Washington to be the, the director of press relations and, and then the deputy spokesman. And I worked and traveled with her closely, and we remained in in contact. I think we had a a bit of a, a bond over sort of a Central European uh, way of thinking. Um, I admired her; she was a mentor. Um, uh, she could be a taskmaster and, and, uh, and hard, but, um, she cared. And, and, you know, she used to describe the United States as, uh, as the indispensable nation in world affairs. And, and some people found that jingoistic and, and chess beating. And, uh, that wasn't what she meant. She, she loved America because her story, her personal story, and her professional story, frankly, were both the stories of our, our alliance. You know, this is someone who grew up in Czechoslovakia. Her father was a diplomat. He was the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. She, with her family, had to take refuge in London, spending the Blitz in tube stations far underground as a little girl, remembering that. And then ultimately, with the communist uh, takeover in, in Czechoslovakia, after World War II, with, of course, the, the Soviet support, they became refugees, in a sense, she and her family, to uh, America, where her father and family found uh, asylum, uh, and she became an American. And she was always so proud. She loved America, and she loved democracy, as uh, one of my colleagues put it. She loved it with her whole being, because she knew the alternative all too well. So she stood up for those values, and... Uh, and applied those not only in her academic studies, but then in her professional service at the United Nations as the first uh, female secretary of state uh, and a, a crusading leader ever since then un until her last days. I'm, I'm struck listening to you. You're obviously talking about a, an extraordinarily impressive woman who was a, a mentor to you. Um, but I'm struck listening to you that there's there's an emotion in your voice when you talk about Madeleine Albright. But it seems to me that what you're alighting on there is perhaps an underlying emotional role that you play as a diplomat, because you too clearly believe that the United States is the indispensable nation. This podcast is called The Last Best Hope with a question <laughs> mark at the end. And, you know, all what we do all the time in these in the conversations that we have on this podcast is to think about that idea and to think about why it's such a powerful notion mm -hmm. that America is the last best hope, which is another way of saying the indispensable nation. You, whatever problems yeah. there may be in the world, America in some sense may be imagined to have a solution. Um, and you've given in broad terms a kind of potentially positive vision of the you know the, the the silver lining of this horrible war in ukraine may be uh, a recognition of those underlying values that's where we were going in this conversation 
But I, I wonder whether you are also concerned about what people can also see in the United States. And we've seen this, and I'm, you're a serving diplomat, so I fully un, I'm not trying to lure you into making political comments about domestic United States politics, because I know you'll <laughs> obviously um, deflect those or play them with a straight bat, as we would say in this country, and quite right too. But you also must be aware of the very negative views of the united states that have, mm-hmm. that uh and you can read the pew surveys as well as anybody which else. i do i, <laughs> I get briefed on them and i <laughs> study them uh, over years i look at trends um look um, i i think you know like madeline albright i too try to remain um clear-eyed about what i call i think it's a the right term the challenges of democracy uh, this whole idea that uh, forming a more perfect union is is uh, a do you goal, think those things are harder there. now than they were in the 1990s which you know in retrospect feels like this kind of warm <laughs> bath of the time in which you know we you know people were arguing about what to do with a budget surplus in congress in which you know remember that dull clinton yes. re-election in 1996 and how genial the whole thing was i mean it's an extraordinary world in retrospect and it wasn't that long ago well, you've got a harder job now haven't you i i think that's true adam it's a more challenging environment for diplomats broadly because there are so many more angles and different engagements. And, you know, people have talked about the fact that we live in the attention economy. You monetize attention. You monetize outrageousness. Um, and there are so many outlets for it because of the social media platforms, because of what I used to call the nonstop news. Is it news anymore when you are focused on, you know, celebrity journalism? You know, when I started out, almost 30 years ago uh, as a press attache, as a spokesperson at the State Department talking about policy, there was a new cycle. Events occurred. You had to verify facts. You had to run it through a process and come out with responses. And that was beginning to change with CNN and 24-hour news. There's no such thing as a news cycle anymore. It's uh, looking for flash quotes, terms, uh, something to drive the clicks, and in the end, you're less in control there as a press as a press spokesman. It, there is a, there's a huge complex yeah. economy of of information and ideas, the and information economy. grabbing things. Yeah. And but the positive side of it might be that it means that there is a generation of people in this country, the United Kingdom, but but also around the world, who are constantly engaging with an America that they construct, that they can see, mm-hmm. which is a profoundly different America from the America that. You know, you are probably dealing with and you have much in your career and your in your professional interactions with politicians and the, that I often see through 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 yeah. through my role. Well, there will always be detractors and there always have been of America, of its ideal. But I think there will always be those, including um, here in Britain, uh, which is going through its own transition, you know, uh, the, the post Brexit era. And I think it's a moment where the United States and the United Kingdom can once again look to each other as we did at other crucial moments in what we can call modern history and try to find that that context. And as you say, I think um, the newer generation of Britons uh, probably know a lot more about the United States or aspects of it than we would have a couple decades ago. Similarly, I would say many Americans feel they understand or know the United Kingdom much better. Language helps our common roots or values. 
Uh, and that's why it is, to use the phrase, some don't like a special relationship. And I found that really interesting to focus on uh, in this role uh, leading our diplomatic mission here, uh, you know, at an embassy that has representatives from so many different U.S. government departments and agencies and, and bureaus involved bilaterally with the United Kingdom counterparts on so many issues from law enforcement, intelligence sharing, of course, military, commercial, social and, and entertainment issues. I mean, all of these things come together. And on so many key issues, we work together. And because we're doing it here in London, it becomes a global stage. And what we're doing together has a global effect as we face these challenges together. And so challenging moments, but I, I, I leave soon uh, after this uh, 10 months in the United Kingdom with a, a sense of hope, but a reminder that this relationship in particular is, is crucial. And, uh, you know, we, there will always be a double-edged sword to, to being America, to the, the, the yearning the for the idea. the America is the last best hope still, still survives in your mind and as, the, and, as a, and as an important component in this special relationship. So but as, as President Biden says, we can only do it now with allies and partners. We cannot do it alone. So the, the last best hope, if you want to put it that way, the yearning for an American ideal has to be something we do with idea. others. Yeah. Ambassador Philip T. Rika, making a case in the most diplomatic and generous way for the role of the US as an embodiment of a set of ideas, shared by others and universally applicable, but embodied in the promise of America. Other perspectives on America's problems and its global role are all too easy to find, of course, at the swipe of a finger. The long shadow of Iraq and the hubris of that war, the seemingly inexorable relative economic decline, the democratic backsliding, even the prospect of wholesale constitutional collapse. But there is idealism too, just as there always has been. And so what of the last best hope of Earth? Well, that idea in its various guises including the modulated multilateral form that Ambassador Rika laid out, that idea isn't going anywhere. And you've been listening to The Last Best Hope with me, Adam Smith. The producer was Emily Williams. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and like us wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Goodbye.